Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, it's me, Sam Baker. And before we go on with the show, I want to tell you about an exciting new initiative coming from The Shift. Many of you have asked how you can support the podcast further and get more Shift into the bargain. Well, now you have the opportunity to do just that by joining The Shift community. You can go to steady.media forward slash The Shift and become a member of The Shift. In return for supporting the podcast, you'll receive exclusive weekly newsletters, community membership and plenty of other perks aimed at bringing us all closer together. That's Steady. Dot media forward slash the shift. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no holds barred truth about being a woman post 40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. When you enter a relationship, you rarely consider how it might end. Let's face it, how many of us would ever do anything if we crossed that bridge before we came to it? For today's guest, writer and therapist Amy Bloom, that bridge came all too soon when her husband Brian was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and decided he would rather die on his feet than live on his knees. It was a decision that sent the couple on a journey from the east coast of America to Dignitas in Switzerland. Amy's memoir, In Love, is the heartbreaking account of that journey. But as the book's title suggests, this is also a tender, hopeful and passionate love letter to a man whose belief in human agency extended to his own death. He was not going to recover. That's what we understood. Whether it was five years or ten years, his body was going to outlast his mind. And, you know, if he was a big, strong guy. If his body lasted 10 years, his mind was not going to last even half that long. Just in case it doesn't go without saying, in parts, this is not the easiest listen. Amy talks openly about the reality of an early dementia diagnosis, the right to die, and living with her husband's decision to do so. But also, the advantages of being older when you fall in love, why you should marry because of each other's faults, not in spite of them, why women often blow up their own lives in their 50s, and her lifelong love of tarot. Thank you so much for coming on and thank you for writing in love. It's full on in the best possible way. It must have been incredibly full on experience for you writing it. Sure. You know, I didn't start out really writing it. I just had a lot of notes and I had a lot of notes often, which were just like the notes that any caregiver has, you know, vitamin B12, pick up at Walgreens, appointment. Mm. Brian has a workout at the gym, get him to the gym and then come back in time to do something else, you know. So I had a lot of notes like that. And then every once in a while when something particularly awful happened, I would jot down a few notes in a notebook. 
I'll actually show you the notebook. See, there we go. And did um, they end up forming the basis? Yeah. So that was really the core of it. And then after Brian's death, I began writing a little bit more and sort of working on just sort of stringing the beads chronologically so I could remember everything that happened. He actually asked you to write it, didn't he? Yes. He felt very strongly about that. I mean, he, he did say ask, but um, I mean, you could say ask, but I would... <laughs> So it was, a little, it was a little more imperative than that. It did sound from how he comes across forceful suggestions. Yes, yes, <laughs> capable of those forceful suggestions. And this was certainly one of them. I mean, he just, he felt that the subject was important and he really felt that people did not know what it was like to try to go through this process or how somebody could come to this decision. And he wanted me to write about it. Do you think there was a certain extent that he thought it might be a cathartic thing for you to do? Or was it more about getting the word out there? I, I don't think his primary concern was whether or not it was <laughs> cathartic for me. I think he thought this is an important thing to do and you, darling, can do it. <laughs> before I kind of take you back to the beginning and before Brian, you mentioned being a caregiver for three years. And I just want to ask you about that because, you know, you'd had children, so you'd cared for children. But at the point that you were no longer caring for children, presumably, you suddenly found yourself caring for an adult. How was that? It was not caregiving, you know, for somebody, you know, with a end stage disease or somebody who was physically immobilized. I mean, there was a sort of lot of kind of sort of tactful deflecting and a tremendous amount of organizing. But it was not, you know, the caregiving that many people have to do when their partner is in serious ill health. You know, I drove more often, even though we didn't really talk about it. And I arranged a lot more things. And I also mostly listened to him talk about things that had become difficulties that had not been difficulties before. And he was quite frustrated. So I would say it was very little like taking care of children. And I, I, I know that sometimes people will say that, that, oh, taking care of somebody with Alzheimer's is like taking care of a child. It's like, not really. I mean, I love taking care of children. Raising my kids was absolutely my favorite gig. But this was not like that. And I have seen people take care of people in more advanced stages of Alzheimer's. And it's it's not like raising your children. I wonder if when people make that analogy, they are simplifying it for the audience, if you know what I mean. It's an easy way of explaining it. I don't know. Well, it also is a comforting way of explaining it. I mean, I mean, I suppose if you didn't like raising your children, <laughs> but I really enjoyed raising my children. And, you know, there's a lot of give and take when you're raising children, even small children. You know, they see you, you see them. And I understand that small children don't necessarily see you as a full human being because that's not their job, but you are interacting and they are growing and all sorts of relationship building and connection building is happening. And that I think is not primarily how people taking care of an Alzheimer's patient would describe it. I was interested to read that you actually became a stepmom at 21 because I became a stepmom at 26 and mm -hmm. it was a very... I mean, not as young as you, but it still took me very much out of sync with my peer group. Um, Absolutely. What was that experience like for you? On the whole, it was pretty good. I mean, I did a lot of babysitting when I was a kid. My best friend and I were like the five-star babysitters of our community, <laughs> although we 
was honestly a little bit better than I was, I have to say. She brought puppets. I did not bring puppets. So she was the best. <laughs> I was the second best. But I loved him. He was just, he was a very special little boy to me. And we connected. And there was a gap where some of the mothering might have been. And so I was able to step into that gap. And it absolutely made me who I am, I think. You know, to start parenting at 21 is to sort of miss that entire period of either cheerful or melancholy narcissism, depending on how you're made. (laughs) And uh, I had other things to do. And I was in graduate school. Did you give up a lot to do that? Because you were very much mothering, weren't you? Whereas I was much more of a, let's just say like a friendly aunt, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though he lived with us. Yeah, no, I understand. I'm sure I did give up stuff. Sure. I was not at Studio 54 clubbing the night (laughs) away until 5am. And I probably would have enjoyed a couple of nights of that. Probably not a couple of years, but I don't think that was ever really what I thought about. I just thought Mm. somebody should be taking care of this kid. And I guess that will be me. So I think, as I say in the book, what it really did was express the fact that this kind of caregiving and caretaking and backleading has been part of my whole life. And I don't feel like somebody made me do that or that I wasn't given other choices. I think that's just part of who I am. Tell me a little bit about meeting Brian, because you were roughly in your late 40s when you met. In our 50s. Tell me a bit about that. I couldn't tell you what it was like to meet him for the first time, because I don't remember. I mean, we found ourselves on the same side of issues in our little town, sort of politically, and sort of we were part of a sort of more progressive group in the town. And so we were aware of each other. We had met each other. You know, we got along. I wouldn't say we got along wonderfully. I would say we, we got along. And, you know, and then at some point we began to talk more as individuals and we began to go on walks. And, you know, I think when you fall in love, it's just sort of a boulder rolling downhill. It's pretty hard to stop. And we avoided each other and then we would see each other and be very drawn to each other. And eventually we do what some people do, which is that we blew up our previous relationships. We moved in together. We got married and built our life together. You were in your early 50s at that point. A lot of the women I've spoken to have kind of blown their lives up at that stage of life. Do you think that was that was in any way relevant? Well, I'm sure everything is relevant. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm a therapist. I'm sure everything yeah. is relevant. Often, not only in my experience, but in my clinical experience, you know, people's children have left the house. The major binding ingredient has disappeared. And that's not necessarily true from the children's point of view. But from the parents' point of view, that glue, that other subject, that third point on the triangle that props up the pair is absent. And I don't think it necessarily reflects a decision on anybody's part to be like, ah, the kids are out the door here I go. Although I know that that happens sometimes. I think sometimes it's like, the kids are out the door. Why am I here? What, what, what am I doing here? What is, what is the point of this relationship now that the children are out? Hmm. So I think that comes together. I think if you're lucky, you meet somebody with whom you have a real connection, which isn't to say that's the only reason to leave. You know, I think there are as many reasons to leave a relationship that doesn't work as there are people. Very true. From your descriptions of Brian at that time, you seem on the face of it quite different people. 
you know, with him being a big footballer and you not. <laughs> I am not that you are right about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm already with me. <laughs> you know, I don't need yeah. another me. I'm fine. You know, I'm reasonably good company for myself. But I think one of the advantages of being older, maybe when you fall in love, is that you are not looking for somebody to complete you. You're not looking for somebody to reflect you. And if you're lucky, you're not looking for somebody to save your life. You know, you can pay your own bills, you can take care of yourself. And what you're going to be drawn towards is whatever that person has to offer, but you don't require them to finish you off in some sort of way. I heard you make a, a wonderful point on another podcast I listened to, which is that it's wise to marry people for their faults, not no. in spite of them. Well, the faults are not going to go away and everybody has them and it would be good to like your partner's faults more than other people's faults. For example, I am not a big fan of the kind of partner that you have to coax along. Come on, come on, you can step off the curb. It's okay. The light's red. We can cross now. I'll hold your hand. It'll be fine. Oh, watch the pot. No, it's okay. Not oh, for me. Exhausting. Yeah. Right. And some people will prefer the sort of the gentleness and the passivity of that kind of personality. I would rather be with somebody who I have to go, you need to slow down, honey. You're driving. <laughs> I'd rather be with that person. And Brian was very much that person. He was. He was the person who would always make you reach for what they call the oh shit bar on the passenger side. The oh, little- yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. My husband drives a car like he's riding a motorbike. So I spend mm-hmm. most of the time clinging onto the oh shit bar. like. <laughs> <laughs> In Love is, it's a very sad book, but also it's a very funny book. I mean, there are moments of such humor and I definitely found myself kind of laughing and kind of like at a funeral when you feel like, oh, I should not have just laughed at that. Like for instance, when he's obsessively hoarding Viagra just in case and you think, oh. Yeah, it's funny you say like a funeral in that you laugh and you think, oh, I shouldn't be laughing. Whereas my response to a funeral is always the more laughter, the better. Mm, definitely. You made a point that interested me about meeting and marrying Brian, that middle-aged women are supposed to look for safe harbour. Mm-hmm. Where do you think that notion comes from? Because many, many of the women I've spoken to are the very reverse of that, but it's prevailing, isn't it, in society? Well, you know, <laughs> unless we're going to do a podcast of sort of deconstructing the patriarchy, I think, you know, <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> we can do that. But I think, you know, one of the underpinnings, I think, often of our understanding of women is that if you like women, then you might think something like they deserve to be protected and they deserve to be safe. And women are vulnerable to all sorts of things. So wouldn't it be nice if in middle age, they could find a safe harbor? And that to me seems to be the position you take if you like women. If you don't like women, it's, you know, women are maimed and missing parts and helpless and hopeless and hapless. And surely we should put them in some sort of safe harbor of some kind so we don't have to witness the terrible things that happen to them, which they have undoubtedly brought on themselves. So that would be the other point of view. But if you put those two together, the women liking position and the women hating position, it's a lot of people who think that women should be looking for safe harbor. And I also think that a great deal of this has to do with class and circumstances. 
you know, if I'm in my mid fifties working a minimum wage job at some crap store, I sure as hell would be looking around for a ladder up and I would give some serious consideration to what those ladders look like. Tell me a bit about Brian's illness and how it first started, how you first became aware of it. Well, I think there's a a significant gap between the symptoms starting to show and my being able to recognize them, which I don't think is uncommon. I think one has a very strong wish to sort of normalize, you know, to be like, oh, you know, it's no big deal, or he's tired, or he's grumpy, or he's in his 60s. And very much, I think Alzheimer's is one of those diagnoses that you really understand over the shoulder, you know, lived forward, understood backwards. And um, some of the things were big, like his being able to continue with his design work, but being unable to operate the printer, Hmm. no matter how many times he was instructed, and he was instructed 10, 15 times. It didn't make a difference. He could not learn it. Now, that was more towards the middle of his symptoms, but also he had designed a house, which was lovely. And in the end, the people he was building the house for had to ask him not to come around the project. Usually architects check in, you know, regularly, depending on the architect, maybe weekly, maybe every 10 days to see how things are going. And he had so offended the builder who he felt was not doing a good enough job and had behaved so loudly and so aggressively that the builder said to the owners, uh, I'm not going to work with this guy. And they had to make a decision between the builder and the architect. But since they were in the middle of building, of course, they went forward with that. And Brian came home from that and he said, well, they fired me. I said, well, not really. And he said, I just didn't manage it the way I should have. I mean, this is a guy who'd been an architect for 40 years. He knew how to manage kinds of projects. I mean, he recognized that he just couldn't find his feet with it. He just couldn't balance it. Or there'd be something like he'd get an email from his book group changing the date of a meeting, and he would be furious. And what was hard for me to figure out is why he was so mad. Like, what was it? You know, as opposed to going, oh, they want to make it Tuesday, not Thursday. Like, And I, I said to him, I said, why are you upset about this? He said, it's just crazy. They're just being crazy. And that was also partially because his vocabulary had begun a little bit to shrink, which is something that you often notice, that um, instead of somebody being identified by their profession or their relationship, it'll be that guy or that woman or those people or this thing or that thing, and, you know, less specificity. And that instantly sounds more aggressive, even though that's not the intent behind the... Right. And you do very much. You can sort of feel somebody looking through, trying to make their way. But it's also the case that if you have a high IQ and a big vocabulary, you can really make this hard to perceive for a long time. What about between the two of you? Were there moments with the benefit of hindsight where you think, oh, then that was a thing? Oh, all the all the time. There were lots of them, you know, whether they were about communication, but more often about memory, more often about scheduling. Um, I noticed that he basically stopped reading for pleasure and he had always been a reader. And the things that seemed sort of complex or he would complain about the formatting, 
you know, he'd say, oh, this is too hard to follow. And I really didn't know what he meant by that. He became less interested in seeing his friends. He continued to be very interested in fishing. There's a lot more storytelling and a lot less conversation. And with me alone, there wasn't even that much storytelling. It was, he was much more silent than he had ever been. And I think those were all signs. You know, when they tell you that, you know, they've diagnosed you with mild cognitive impairment, I don't know what they mean by mild. But, you know, since mm-hmm. moderate is disastrous, I guess mild is less than disastrous. The person can still communicate, but it's a significant impairment. I mean, some of the things that you're describing, it sounds like things that you very much associate with aging, or I, one, would very much associate with aging, but much older than he was. Right. Right. If Brian had been in his mid-80s, I don't know that I would have thought much of any of this. I would have thought, oh, well, you know, here we are, mid-80s. This is the kinds of things that happen. Although I have friends in their mid-80s who are not like that at all. He's in his early 60s. So can you tell me a bit about the diagnosis? Because was mild cognitive impairment the diagnosis? No. Well, it was a sign. But when you go to a neurologist about memory issues, they will say, we cannot definitively say that it's Alzheimer's. We wouldn't know that until there was an autopsy. Oh, God. They give you the tests and they can show you how somebody has done on the tests and you are free to draw your own conclusions because they will say, well, this is normal. This is problematic. This is extremely problematic. But we both understood that this was a dementing disease, as they call it, because there are several different ones. And he was not going to recover. That's what we understood. Whether it was five years or 10 years, his body was going to outlast his mind. And, you know, if he was a big, strong guy, if his body lasted 10 years, his mind was not going to last even half that long. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And did the medical professionals that you were dealing with, did they offer up any, I don't want to say solutions, because obviously there aren't any, but was it just his diagnosis? It's like, there aren't any. So, you know, these poor people, what are they going to say to you? Eat blueberries, get plenty of rest, do exercises. Sure, absolutely doing crossword puzzles is a good idea. Enjoy life. Now, I don't fault anybody for making those remarks. But, you know, in some sense, all of those remarks could be followed by or not. 
it's not that nobody thinks they make any difference. They make they. It's certainly possible that doing all those things, which Brian absolutely did, the blueberries, the enough sleep, the exercise, and the crossword puzzles, is a good idea, and it might make things a little better. It is not going to change the course of the illness. What was the impact of that diagnosis on you? Well, the analogy I use is like you see the car coming towards you and then the car hits you. So you're not you're not shocked because you saw the car, but it's terrible and the experience itself is shocking even though you are not entirely surprised because you saw the car coming. It was like that. It was terrible, but I was not in a state of disbelief. Neither Brian nor I were very good at denial. And for some people it can be really helpful. So he very quickly, didn't he, made up his mind this was not for him after that diagnosis? He did. You know, he also knew himself and he knew what he needed and he knew what was important to him. And he had seen Alzheimer's close up in the family. He knew what it looked like. You know, so what you mentioned earlier, that moment of us being like, oh, we'll just see what happens. We knew what was going to happen. And two of his very close friends, both of whom had played football with him, both were diagnosed with Alzheimer's before he was. So we had seen it Mm. in variations. And so I guess in some sense, what was not available to us was, oh, we'll just see what happens since we have no idea. We knew exactly what happens. And that was part of what I think helped him focus within himself with so much clarity and so much strength of purpose from the very beginning. He knew exactly how it goes and what it looks like and that nobody could guarantee us how long a window he would have in which he was you know, functioning well cognitively and would be considered to be able to make good decisions. And we knew that window was there now, but nobody could tell us, oh, you've got a couple of years. Did you discuss the decision or did he kind of hit you with it? Well, he told me what he had decided. And I said, you don't have to do that. I will take care of you. I can protect you. I can manage and I'll keep you as home as long as possible. And he said, um, you're not really hearing me. (laughs) He said, I know you could do all of that. That's not what I want. That's not how I want to live. And that's not how I want to die. And you love me and you're going to help me. And that was true. Tough call though for you. Well, it was very painful. It wasn't tough in the sense that I thought, oh, what a crazy decision. I have to talk him out of it. I understood the decision. I probably would have made the same decision myself. And I admired him and I respected him. And I did not disagree with his assessment of himself when he said to me, you know how I am. I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. And I thought, I do know how you are. Yeah. And that, as you say in the book, that was the person you married. Mm -hmm. Person I married is the person I chose, person I wanted to throw my lot in with. And that did not change. You talk about kind of having a loop in your mind of fear of being a bad wife. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really think I was a bad wife. I actually think I was quite a good wife. But, but, you know, I did sometimes think, oh, you know, maybe somebody else would have spent months and months trying to talk him out of this. But I think that was also expressive of our relationship, which is that we didn't really know who the other person was. You know, Brian took one last big fishing trip and it was really important to him to go. And I had a lot of anxiety about his going and 
his competence in certain ways. Again, it was the kind of thing like he could have shown you how to catch salmon practically the last day of his life. I mean, he never lost those skills or those abilities or even the ability to show somebody. But I worried about his getting lost in the woods on the way to the river. And so he had already had the diagnosis. So I called his best friend who he was going with. And I said, you just got to take care of him. I said, and I know he's not going to, he's not going to ask. And I realize you are all men. So I'm just going to take that into consideration and say, <laughs> you have to make looking after him a priority. And of course, his friend who loved him so said a hundred percent. And he, Brian had a wonderful time. He was gone for five days. He had a ball, great fishing, great pictures. And I'm glad, even though, you know, I don't think I slept <laughs> for the five days. <laughs> Did you sleep very much at all during this whole time? Remarkably little. I mean, I feel like for an old lady, I did very well and not a lot of sleep. <laughs> at one point, he asked you to do it, didn't he? To help him do it. Yes, although it wasn't very specific. It was sort of like, well, maybe, you know, when the time is right, you can end my life. And I'm like, first of all, how is it that I'm going to be doing that? You know, he was, he was, you know... Six one and 220 pounds. I'm like, I, how am I going to be doing that? And then as I pointed out to him, you know, it's against the law, honey. And again, this was very Brian. He was quite disappointed. And, and <laughs> I, said, you know, I, could go to, I could go to jail. And he paused and he said, you'd be great in jail. You're so resourceful. You're such a leader. <laughs> You'll be running that place in no time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy that I didn't have to do that. I I can't say that I wouldn't have or I couldn't have, but I am very glad that that Dignitas was there to make it peaceful and painless and that I could hold his hand and be with him. At the point that he, you know, he said, you know, I, I don't want a long goodbye. Did you have any idea the extent of the lengths you'd have to go to to deliver that? No. You know, sometimes it's probably better if you cannot see the whole height of the mountain before you start the journey. Do you think he thought that you'd be able to do it in the States? Well, originally we both did. I mean, you know, we're both reasonably well-read people. We were like, oh, there are right-to-die states. And so I researched them only to discover that, A, it is a very small eye of a very thin needle intentionally. The goal of the laws is not to, for example, relieve suffering for as many people as possible. The goal is to make sure that the number of people who can take advantage of this is very, very small. And in any case, none of it applied to people with Alzheimer's, because although it is a terminal illness, it is not, it's not like pancreatic cancer. It's not a swift moving illness. I mean, it's more swift moving than some, but the laws that are set up so that when you have six months to live in your terminal illness. And there are two doctors who testify that you have six months to live, that your body will expire in six months. That makes you eligible. So it is, these laws have nothing to do with anybody who has Parkinson's, who has, you know, maybe some people who have ALS, you know, so if you have a long and fatal illness, these laws are of no use to you at all. I mean, the crucial bit of that is six months for your body to expire, isn't it? Right. You know, and that just doesn't take into any account what your mind is doing. Right. And, you know, it is not just with Alzheimer's, but with so many diseases, you get to the last six months of somebody's terminal illness. For many people, they are not able to function cognitively the way the laws would require them to. 
I mean, to be six months from that point with Alzheimer's, you'd be very long past making that decision. Years past. How did you, you plural, go about deciding what time was the right time? Well, I think it required both of us to understand that the right time was going to be when it was possible and when Brian would meet the criteria and still be cognitively functioning. And as Brian himself said, this is the kind of situation where you have to leave early or you don't get to leave at all. And I think that's one of the things that's so hard for people. It's just so hard to make that decision. You know, the sun is shining and the daffodils are out and you're playing with the kids. Why would you leave? And I understand completely why people don't want to leave. I mean, he didn't want to leave. I didn't want him to leave. But as he said, he was going to have to leave no matter what. And I think that's the hard thing to face, that Alzheimer's is going to take away this person. Whether they decide to leave earlier or later, they will be leaving before they want to and before you want them to. You must have just wanted wanted to shut yourself in a room and scream, didn't you? Uh, well, I often did. Yeah, because I was reading it and thinking, oh my God, how did you not just combust? How did you not just punch a wall, punch a person, you know? You know, I'm not, I'm not incapable of physical violence, but it's not the first thing <laughs> that I've And no, I spent a lot of time, you know, when I had 10, 15 minutes, an hour to myself, just crying and yelling and going for a walk and screaming and, you know, throwing rocks into the marsh, all of which I think is to be recommended, especially if you have to then get back to work. I mean, I think that's one of the things that struck me through all of this. And you write so incredibly movingly about the last few days of Brian's life and the the trip to Zurich and, you know, the toast on the plane and the stewardesses behaving the way they've always behaved and like batting their eyes at your gorgeous husband. And I suppose what I was thinking through all of it, and it says much more about me than it does about your situation or you, but I was just thinking, what about you in all of this? Well, I think that the me in all of this tells the story, you know. I'm not much of a why me person. I think I was raised by the kind of, my parents were sort of old school. I was raised by the kind of people who were like, why not you? You Terrible things happen. What do you mean? Why you? You (laughs) Terrible things happen everywhere all the time. Why not you? And I think I probably internalized some of that. It was just hard in lots of complicated ways. And I did, did want to do my best to sort of both give a portrait of the marriage and a portrait of this process. So I thought it was important, you know, to acknowledge how many times I burst into tears or, you know, was downhearted or angry or scared out of my mind, because that's all part of it. You know, having a spouse or a parent, but especially a spouse with a dementing disease does not mean that the person who's doing the caring stops being a person. You know, you know, you have to change some of the ways in which you express yourself and manage things. But, you know, you go on being a person, which is part of what's so painful. Yeah, this was two, two and a half, almost years ago now. Um, And you had to get back on the plane with your lovely friend who came to meet you and go back home and go back on with your life. And while you were going through that process, the world melted down Mm -hmm. and global-ish lockdown. I mean, were you on your own? Were you locked down alone at that point? Well, as it turns out, the lockdown for me was a very different and better experience than it was for so many people. My daughter and her wife and their baby were in Brooklyn. And my daughter called me and said, they've just shut the preschool and we both have to work full time from home and there is no childcare. It's over. There's no babies and there's no mm-hmm. childcare. 
daycare. And I said, come on up. So they got in their little tiny Brooklyn clown car and (laughs) came up and we lived together for the next five months. And that was a tremendous gift. It's not a gift I would have known to ask for. It's not a gift I could have imagined wanting or needing or that that would be the best thing. But it turns out that that was the best thing. And I was incredibly lucky and grateful to have them with me all the time. And basically, I took care of Zora for, you know, four or five hours in the morning. And then we would have the handoff and I would go to my office and I would cry or I would nap or I would cry and nap and write. And that was usually my afternoon routine. And then we would all have dinner. So real lifesaver in a really strange way. Absolutely. To have that much life brought to me was a real gift. I want to ask you about tarot. It was really interesting to me that someone who's uh, you know, a trained therapist, I kind of wouldn't have thought you'd be into tarot. I love that you are. But I, what is it? I, I, I really understand that. As I write in the book, you know, if you think this is a ridiculous thing for a rational person like me to do, I have no argument for you. Yeah. Like I'm not selling it. Um, I you kind of do sell it, though. I think. <laughs> you know, if people are engaged by the description, um, that's fine. I, you know, I don't care. I don't get a commission from the international network of tarot card readers. It's <laughs> like when I was a teenager, I worked as a shill for a psychic in the village in New York City. And my job on Friday and Saturday nights was to walk in front of Madame Rosa's little storefront and say, Madame Rosa, only $5, sees all both worlds. <laughs> So I'm very familiar with tarot cards and how to read cards. And for me, it's helpful. I don't ever build my life decisions around it. It doesn't tend to guide a lot of my behavior. But for me, it's a little bit like poetry. It's all metaphor and it's interesting. And sometimes the metaphors capture my imagination and can lead me to think more deeply or more widely or more creatively about a difficulty. And there you have it. Also, it's very pretty. Very pretty. It was really interesting that pretty much by the end, you say that you only really trusted your tarot reader, Susie Chang, and and your therapist, the great Wayne, as I feel like we all should call him. I appreciate that. We all should call him that. <laughs> How does the great Wayne feel about the book, being one of the stars of the book, actually? Well, alas, the great Wayne has also passed. Oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it was certainly a great loss for me and a great loss for lots of people. He was a wonderful therapist. He was a wonderful teacher. He was a wonderful mentor to a lot of therapists. But his widow liked the book very much, which pleased me. And um, I think I had given him some pages to read, which he had. But I, I know how supportive he was of the process and of Brian. Kind of me. He does come across absolutely wonderful, I have to say. How are you now, two years plus? I feel very lucky. You know, it turns out for me, I get to grieve and move forward. You know, everybody has to grieve differently. And for me, the best I can do for me is to bring the grief with me into life. And so I've been very lucky in my family and in my friends. And also, although I think I was pretty good at appreciating things around me and, you know, being able to admire the cloud crossing the sky kind of feeling. I feel like I'm better at it now. I feel like, boy, you do not know what is coming around the corner. And the really smart move 
in life is to appreciate the flower and appreciate the sunshine and appreciate the moment that you have sitting in a chair that's comfortable reading something you wanted to read or writing something you wanted to write or playing checkers with your grandchild, whatever it is, you want to lean into that stuff, lean into everything that life gives you. And I feel like I wasn't bad at it before, but I feel like I am better at it now. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you now the questions that I always ask at the end of this podcast. What's your emotional age? I know lots of times people say, oh, you know, I'm really 25 inside. I don't actually feel that way. I mean, I feel like I guess my emotional age is 68. I am the age that I am. And um, I think you bring all yourselves with you. So that me at 21 and me at 41 and me at 51, but also me now. Uh, Give us a book recommendation. Oh, oh, um, Childhood. Uh, the I can't pronounce her name to save my life, but the the Copenhagen trilogy. But yeah, I've actually I, got that here too. What did you like about it? It's very spare and darkly funny and extremely observant. You know, just a real sharp eye, and I enjoyed it. What advice would you give younger women? Oh. Most skills are transferable. If you can take care of a toddler, you can probably take care of anybody. If you can organize your life, you can probably organize anything. If you can teach, you can teach anything. So never think that your skills are not adequate. You can always learn more, but nobody can teach you how to want to learn. Also, mean doesn't go away. You have one of those boyfriends or girlfriends or friends or parents who likes to say mean things to you. That will never change. And the second time you hear it, you should grab your coat and go. That's such a good piece of advice. Who is an older woman who's inspired you? There are a lot of artists whom I don't necessarily know, whom I really admire. But of course, I'm admiring their work, which is different than knowing and admiring the person. You know, I didn't think she was perfect, but I admired Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I didn't think she was perfect, but I admired Toni Morrison. You know, people don't have to be perfect. Audrey Lord, Adrian Rich, the beautiful poet Jane Hirschfield. She's not really an older woman. She's with the same age. She's a friend. <laughs> um, I admire Jane Austen tremendously. I just remember seeing the little table that she wrote at with the crap lighting and the uncomfortable <laughs> chair and her bad back. And I admire that perseverance. What's your superpower? I think I can get dinner on the table for up to eight people in under half an hour. Oh, my God. Can you bottle that? I wish I could. I also wish I could do other <laughs> things with it, but I think that's that's better. <laughs> and lastly, how many fucks do you give? That would be none. I think that's hardly surprising in the circumstance. <laughs> it doesn't stop me from doing my best to be nice, as my mother would have said, and it doesn't stop me from doing my best to be kind, which I think matters a great deal. It matters to me probably more now than it ever has. But my father used to say to me, if you worry about the opinion of other people, shame on you. That's your fault, not their fault. Very good point. He also had no fucks to give. (laughs) On that note, thank you very much, Amy. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift further, please consider becoming a member of our community 
Find out more at study.media forward slash the shift. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 